are listening to the Sports Daily. I'm your host, Reality Steve. Thank you all for tuning in. Good Monday show for you. We're going to talk about some football statistics I found over the weekend. We've got more on college basketball. The NBA All-Star Weekend. Was it good? Was it bad? Was it average? I've got some ratings to compare that kind of blow your mind away. The XFL launches, relaunches again. That opened up this weekend, and like I said, some more college basketball to end it. I've got to talk about Tennessee, and I'm going to talk about the game, big game tonight in Fort Worth. We'll get to that momentarily. So I first want to start off just talking about some football statistics and some football news that I came across this weekend. The first thing is, it looks like the NFL is going to ban Well, what they're calling the tush push. You saw it in the Super Bowl, I think, three or four times with the Eagles with a quarterback on fourth and one, fourth and a half inch, maybe even fourth and two. But it's usually done on fourth and one or less where the quarterback will take the snap and I'll have a fullback and maybe even an offensive lineman and a running back behind him or two running backs behind him. He takes the snap and he just gets pushed forward almost like a rugby scrum to pick up the first down, and it basically works all the time. And it looks like the NFL is going to ban that for next season. I don't know. I like seeing first downs converted, to be honest with you. Who wants to see punts? And if you say, well, if they don't get it on third down, they're just going to do it on fourth, yeah, I guess it's possible. But I'd much rather see first downs converted in offense staying on the field than a punting contest in an NFL game. And if this gets them the first down, it gets them the first down. So I have no problem with it. If they want to ban it, fine, whatever. You got to remember, when a quarterback takes the snap from center, he's obviously already behind the line of scrimmage. And you'd be like, fourth and one, if you can't hand off and get a yard, well, you're getting a yard in terms of where the down and distance is. When you hand the ball off to a running back, he's getting it three, four yards behind the line of scrimmage. So technically, he has to run four or five yards before he gets a first down. He only gets credit for one if he gets right past the first down marker. But you know what I'm saying? That's why teams don't like handing the ball off on third and one or fourth and one, because it's not like, oh, it's so hard to get one yard. Well, it is, and you're handing the ball off three, four yards in the backfield. So... I get why teams do it by just having the quarterback take the snap and be pushed forward. You're not having to worry about going three, four yards behind the line of scrimmage. You could Somebody can step on somebody's foot. There could be a mishandling of the handoff. So many things can go wrong when you hand off on third and one, fourth and one. Get the snap as a quarterback, lean forward, get pushed forward. It's like, again kind of like in baseball, how they're outlawing the shift, which is like, no, you can't play the best defense possible to prevent a guy from getting a hit. This seems to be such a successful play in the NFL, and now they're saying, no, we're not giving you the opportunity to have one of the most successful plays in the NFL anymore. We're outlawing it. I don't really understand it, but it looks like that's what we're headed towards next year. The other thing that happened over the weekend And this is still a head-scratcher to me. I do not understand what's going on. Eric Biennemi, the offensive coordinator of the Kansas City Chiefs for the last five years, three times he's gotten his team to the Super Bowl, two times he's won it. He leaves the Kansas City Chiefs for another offensive coordinator position 
with a way less talented offense. I understand he got associate head coaching title to be with the Washington Commanders under Ron Rivera, but how in the world is a guy like Jonathan Gannon and Shane Steichen getting head coaching gigs before Eric Bieniemy does? Jonathan Gannon, nobody knew his name before this year when the Eagles put up statistically the number one defense in the NFL. They certainly didn't play like it in the Super Bowl, which might have had something to do with the fact that they didn't really play anybody good this year. Shane Steichen, did anybody know his name before this year when the Eagles had a great offense that could beat you with the pass and the run? No. And it's just this good old boys network with NFL owners that just doesn't make a lot of sense. And I don't understand what the enemy's doing. Why wouldn't you just want to stay and rack up possible playoff appearances and Super Bowl appearances and maybe even Super Bowl wins with the Chiefs before you bolt for a head coaching job? Why would you bolt for a a job that's basically a step down? It might not be a step down in terms of he, he does have his associate head coaching title. Apparently he did get a raise. But as an offense coordinator and associate head coach, it's not like he's getting five to ten million dollar of a raise. Sure, it's a little bit more. But just stay as the Chiefs offense coordinator and then only leave when you get a head coaching gig. I don't understand this sideways move, if not backwards move, to be the offensive coordinator for a way worse offense. Now, if he turns the commanders into a great offense you would think that would get him a head coaching gig but I can't even guarantee you that how can three Super Bowls in five years and running one of the best offenses in all of football that we've ever seen historically not get you an NFL head coaching job in five years man something's he's getting screwed and I I you know it's his decision to go to the commanders but geez doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense One of the things in the NFL that I've talked about is that this has just become a quarterback league and a wide receiver league. Running backs are a dime a dozen. It doesn't matter if you have a great one. It doesn't guarantee you anything, especially when it comes to winning the Super Bowl. You're just like, well, how do you know? Well, the statistics bear it out because I found something this weekend that I think will probably blow a lot of you away. Since 2009, which is right around the time, probably even a little bit earlier, but when the league started becoming more pass heavy and these teams started running the spread offense and they started, it was probably around 2012 or 2013, but let's go back to 2009, the last 14 Super Bowl winners. Do you know the average salary of the leading rusher in the Super Bowl for the winning team in those 14 years, the average salary? Well, actually I don't even know the average. I just know the Salary of the leading rusher on the winning team for the last 14 years. One of them was a wide receiver playing running back. That was Percy Harvin with the Seahawks in 2013. They had him in the running back position, but he was not a traditional running back. He made $2.5 million a year. Ray Rice with the Ravens in 2012 made $2 million a year. Leonard Fournette with the Bucks in 2020 made $2 million a year. Ahmad Bradshaw made $1.5 million with the Giants in 2011, and Damian Williams with the Chiefs made a million. Every other 
running back. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine of the last 14 running backs that were on the winning team that led them in rushing in the Super Bowl made less than a million dollars a year. And the five that were above a million, no one made more than 2.5. So this notion that you got to pay a big running back and, well, how's that worked out for you in the last 14 years? Look at the leading rusher on some of these Super Bowl winning teams in the last 14 years. Isaiah Pacheco. Cam Akers, Sony Michelle, LeGarrette Blunt twice, three times, sorry, Eagles and twice with the Patriots, C.J. Anderson, Ahmad Bradshaw, James Starks, Pierre Thomas. Zero of those players are going to the Hall of Fame. Isaiah Pacheco's a rookie with Kansas City, so it's too early to tell for him, but none of those players are going to the Hall of Fame. None of those players are probably players that you would he consider in the top 50 running backs of all time. (laughs) And here we are. Those were the leading rushers on Super Bowl winning teams and their salaries. So not that you didn't already know this, but teams that are spending a shit ton of money on their running back, it's killing them, a.k.a. the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, they gave Zeke that huge contract when he held them at gunpoint and, you know, sat out the first few games of, uh, or did he miss games, regular season games, or he just missed training camp when he went down to Cancun and all that stuff and he was working out. Bottom line is they gave him and they gave him so much money and now he's literally a guy that's going to get you an average of 50 Yards a game, maybe 60. This is a guy in his last 50 carries in the 2022 season gained a total of 100 yards. He's not a lead running back anymore. He never will be a lead running back anymore. He's making a god-awful amount of money. That's strapping the Dallas Cowboys. Don't take running backs and spend a ton of money on them. It is just not worth it. So I'll be honest with you, I'm recording this as the NBA All-Star Game is going on. You'd think, oh, I want to talk about it. I don't care. (laughs) It's not a fun game to watch. You're probably, maybe some of you watched it last night. It is just a street ball game. Nobody plays any defense. They throw lobs to each other. They throw it off the backboard, and nobody even tries till the end of the game when they have the Elam ending, which I've explained to you a couple times on this podcast, and maybe the Elam ending makes it exciting at the end of this year's game. I don't know. I'm recording this, and it's probably the second quarter right now. I just didn't want to wait (laughs) because there's no point. I I mean, maybe I'll talk about a little bit about it tomorrow when I finish watching it after I record this, but NBA All-Star Game, the game itself is a backseat to what happens on Saturday night. And now Saturday night is becoming not necessarily a problem, but... It's nothing to write home about. They have failed absolutely miserably when it comes to the skills challenge on Saturday night. The first thing that they do, which is like that obstacle course, nobody cares. Nobody knows who wins. Nobody cares who wins. Half these guys aren't even trying. They don't want to break a sweat because they don't want to come off as trying to win it. You know, they have to look too cool while they're doing it. And then if you miss a pass, you're basically done. It just... 
get rid of it. Think of something else. I don't know what. You got to think of something else, though. The team shooting drill. That was terrible. Now, you have a minute to shoot from all these different spots on the floor and you get different points for each spot. I get it. But my gosh, the Utah team won with 13 points, and that's with a five-pointer available to make. Like, they all three teams that competed in that were awful. One of them got, I think, one point. They missed every shot except the one-pointer. The team shooting does nothing. Nobody, Again, nobody cares. Three-point shooting, obviously, if you get a couple hot shooters, that's probably the most entertaining of the actual skills challenges to watch on All-Star Saturday. I'm fine with the three-point shooting contest. It's been around forever. It'll never go anywhere. I like the fact that they added like a deeper shot, a 30-footer to get you three points. I like the fact that you were able to put a rack of all two-point balls, bonus balls, whatever you want to call them, wherever you'd like. I like when they change that rule. So I'll, I'll always like the three-point shooting contest because as a basketball player growing up and everything, I was I was a shooter. So I feel like anything involving shooting. The dunk contest has sucked ever since Aaron Gordon and Zach Levine had their dunk off, which was one of the best ones ever. Because you just don't get the top guys entering. I know that Zion's hurt, but even if he wasn't hurt, he wasn't going to enter. Shaden Sharp of the Portland Trailblazers is the best dunker in the NBA right now, and he decided not to do it. But what we saw Saturday night actually breathed a little life into it. To see Mac McClung, a guy from the G League, but not necessarily from the G League. Mac McClung, for anybody in the in the area, I think it was the D.C. area where he grew up, knows all about Mac McClung. He had a hype video out there that had been going around his high school years, and he's been on the dunk radar for a while. And yes, a lot of it has to do because he's white and short, and he looks like he's 13 years old. So yes, when you see a guy like that jumping out of the gym, it's impressive. And what he did Saturday night was even more impressive because one, he didn't miss any dunks. That was the crazy part. And number two, of the four dunks that he did, three of them, he got all 50s. And only and then the other one, he got four 50s and a 49. So what he did was great. And it you saw the crowd reaction. You saw the other players' reaction. It was a – the overall dunk contest wasn't great, but he was great, and that's all you need is at least one dunker. But in the past, ever since the Aaron Gordon and Zach Levine dunk off in the past when we've seen these – guys that miss four or five times and then they're just like running out of steam because they can't just keep jumping at that ability in a span of 90 seconds. Then they just like throw it off the backboard and do a windmill. It's like, okay, you're six, eight and you can jump through the gym. That's not impressive. What Mac McClung did was impressive for his height and the fact that he can get up so high and do some dunks that we've just never seen before. That's what I like. We saw stuff that we've never seen before. So congratulations to him. He has a contract with the Philadelphia 76ers now. He probably won't play all too much, but hopefully he gets in a game and can get in and maybe get some run with the Sixers and get a full-time deal through the end of the year and not have to go back to the G League. But I liked it, three-point contest, and the dunk contest were, were, were entertaining. But Saturday's game, like I said, I don't care. What's interesting is during the game – one of the writers for SI, or excuse me, The Athletic, Richard Deitch, 
had this tweet. I had to go look, look it up because I couldn't believe it, but it was true. The 1980 Major League Baseball All-Star Game. You know how many people watched that? 1980. Now, granted, this was 43 years ago. Baseball was the number one sport in America. It was the lovable, you know, the pastime. And everybody loved baseball. 36 million people tuned in to watch an all-star game in the middle of July in 1980 for baseball. The two AFC and NFC championship games this year in the NFL didn't draw 36 million. They both drew over 30, but they were under 36. That shows you, one, how popular baseball used to be, and two, how unpopular baseball is now. Do you know how much last year's Major League Baseball All-Star game drew? Seven million. And if you look at it across the board of the three main sports, they all draw right around six, seven million. The NFL Pro Bowl that we just saw, the skills competition and now a flag football game, drew 6.6 million. And then last year's NBA All-Star game, pulling that up, that drew 6.28 million. And if you look at the last... I don't know, 10 years of NBA All-Star Game ratings? 8 million, 7 7.5, 7.1, 7.6, 7.7, 7.6, 6.7, 7.2, 5.9, 6.2. It's just not a game that most people care to view. Then you look at baseball. I'm going to do this really fast. I'm going to start in 1980. But, you know, some of these are like, when I say 24 million, I might be saying, it could be 24.1, anywhere to 24.9, but I'm not going to read the point. I'm just going to say how many millions watch it, starting in 1980. And you can see how it just drops every year for the last 40 years. 36, 34, 27, 28, 28, 28, 24, 29, 25, 24, 24, 21, 22, 22, 20, 18, 16, 18, 17, 14, 16, 14, 13, 13, 12, 14, 12, 14, 14, 12, 11, 10, 11, 11, 10, Eight nine eight eight seven. Those are the last forty three years of Major League Baseball. How many viewers tuned in? Tuned in in the millions. <laughs> Just nineteen eighty thirty six million people tuning in to watch a meaningless baseball game mid season, and now seven million people tune in. Yes, I understand. There's so many more options now, but man, have the times changed? Because we all know the popularity of baseball, not just in the All-Star game, just World Series numbers, too, are so far below college football national championship, NBA. NBA is a little bit above Major League Baseball in terms of their NBA finals, but college football national championship, Super Bowl are king when it comes to the championship games in the major sports and viewership. It's not even close. And I want to wrap with this. XFL. Actually, we have XFL and college football to get to. So first off with the XFL, this relaunched in 2020, but then got cut short because of COVID. But Dwayne The Rock Johnson bought it. They restarted and they refired up the league this past weekend. I watched one quarter of one of the games. I'm not watching to see who could possibly make an NFL roster because somebody will. There'll be a lineman or a linebacker or maybe even a quarterback or maybe even a receiver that makes a roster and maybe has a a decent stay with an NFL team. But I don't think you're getting too many superstars out of this league. I'm not watching it for the football. I'm watching it for the innovations 
Because for those that don't remember, when the XFL first launched and Vince McMahon threw out this idea back in the late 90s, it was, while panned by the critics, the NFL ended up stealing a lot of their ideas. One being when the offensive team runs out on the field to start the game or anytime when the cameras are right in the huddle, that was started by the XFL. They also did cameras on the field where the camera's running along, you know, they attach it to the top of the stadium and the camera just runs along the line of the field. That was started by the XFL. They had... Gosh, I want to say I can't remember. No, I don't think it was the I don't think it was the score on the box score. That wasn't XFL. But the innovations of cameras on the field started with the XFL. So I was wondering, well, what do they have this year and then in the new XFL that the NFL might adopt? I can tell you one thing that they should adopt already is the replay system. Did you see the replay system for XFL? We literally got a camera inside the booth. We have the director of officiating, Dean Blandino, who does for the NFL, but he's in the studio and he's just talking to the broadcasters. Dean Blandino is now talking to the officials on the field saying, okay, I got one foot down and I got secure possession. That is a catch. And then the official relays it to the crowd. And you see Dean Blandino in the studio looking at the play and rewinding it and looking at it, rewinding it and looking at it. Oh, let me see if he's got it. Yes. Clear possession. Let me see his feet. Yes. Why can't the NFL do this? Why is there no transparency in the NFL? That needs to be done. As for the extra point system, they don't kick extra points in the XFL. If you go for it from the if you want to go for one point after you get a touchdown, that is from the two yard line. A two point conversion is from the five, three point conversion from the ten. Very interesting. I think the NFL could possibly adopt that at some point. I think the kickoff rule is going to be adopted by the NFL and the punt rule, which is the kickoff rule. The kicker is all by himself, and he kicks the ball. The team that's receiving the ball has their guys lined up on the 20. The defenders are lined up on the 25, and they can't start running toward him, and the team that's defending can't start running towards and blocking until their receiver catches the ball. That just means you're not allowed a full running start, and it encourages at least you're going to have some kickoff returns. So I definitely think the NFL is going to adopt that at some point because they one of the one of the scariest and most injury-prone plays in the NFL is returning kicks because guys are running at you full speed. This prevents that from happening. This is going to happen in the NFL sooner rather than later. And I think the replay thing should absolutely be done in the NFL. So those are two things I noticed about the XFL. I, I'm never going to care who wins any of these games. I'm never going to care who wins the championship. I couldn't even tell you all the teams. Don't care. Jerseys, whatever. I just am looking at it for innovations that I know the NFL will steal because they did it the first time around. And finally, I want to talk some college basketball with you. Got a lot of watching in this weekend. I'm starting to prioritize college basketball now. There's going to be a lot of college basketball talk in the next month or so as we head into March Madness. Boy, North Carolina, what a head-scratcher this team is. This is the team that was ranked number one in preseason because they got to the national championship game last year, led Kansas by double digits at halftime, and were almost the national champions. And they returned four of their five starters, and yet... Right now, if you look at the mock bracketology of who's going to make the tournament and who isn't, they're on the outside looking in. 
What a choke job by North Carolina this year. Not only that, they are 0-9 in quad one games. If you don't know what quad one games are, that is how the committee determines what's a good win and what isn't. A quad one win means if you have a home game and you beat a team that's ranked in the top 30 of the net top 30. Or a quad one win is if you play on a neutral court and it's a team that's in the top 50 or a road win of a team in the top 75. The North Carolina Tar Heels are 0-9. They haven't beaten anybody in a quad one win this whole year. And they lost again yesterday to NC State. They're not going to make the tournament. They made the finals last year and returned four of their five starters, and they're not going to make the tournament as they're playing right now. They've got four games left. They should win two. They have Notre Dame and some other patsy, but then they end Virginia and Duke. And those will be quad one wins if they could win them, but what makes us think they're going to win any of those? They haven't beaten anybody good all year. That is crazy. Oh, and nine. No preseason number one team, which they were to start the season, has ever missed the NCAA tournament. And they're about to. Holy crap. Again, remember last week I was saying, you don't want, if they make it in, they're going to be an eight and nine or a 10 seed. You don't want to see them in the second round. Maybe you do because they can't beat anybody. And then tonight, Kansas and TCU. Remember, TCU went into Kansas and absolutely blitzed them three weeks ago. And then they went on a losing streak because they lost their best scorer, Mike Miles, and their center, um, Lumpkin. I keep forgetting his first name. But TCU got back on track. They blew out Oklahoma State this past weekend. Now they're hosting Kansas tonight. I mean, that would be huge for your resume if you beat Kansas twice in one season. But they have their guys back. And this is the team that I am absolutely thinking can be a Final Four team. I throw out those four losses before this past weekend because they didn't have their best player who's also arguably the best player in the Big 12 in Mike Miles Jr. So I'm looking at them tonight. If they can beat Kansas, I don't care where they're seated. They're going to end up getting a low seed because they have eight or nine losses now due to that losing streak when Miles and Lumpkin were out. I hope they sit there at a five or a six seed because they are absolutely going to be underseeded due to those injuries and they can beat anybody. If you can go into Fog Allen Fieldhouse and beat Kansas as badly as they did going up by 30 in the first 10 minutes of the game, or, or is it 20? We're at 20, 30. The thing is, Kansas never got it under 10 the rest of the game. So, And you saw what Baylor did to them this weekend. Baylor was up in the first half almost 20 points on Kansas and then ended up losing the game by 17. So Kansas shows they play poorly in the first half but can always come back. Never came back against TCU. TCU controlled that game from minute one to minute 40. I'm looking forward to this rematch tonight. Even if TCU loses, I think they keep this close and just need to see them play with all their healthy guys, which they are right now. This is going to be a dangerous team come tournament time, I'm telling you. I'll watch them get bounced in the first round. But anyway, I'm probably going to be on them in the first round no matter who they play, but we'll see. We'll have to see what the pairings are and whatnot. So thank you all for listening. Really appreciate it. Please rate, subscribe, and review an Apple podcast. Much appreciated. And remember... Sports will always be the greatest reality show on television.